This is a Daily Wildcat production. Wildcat crime listeners should be aware that this episode contains descriptions of violence, murder, and sexual assault, and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Wildcat Crime, the monthly podcast dedicated to taking a closer look at some of the most infamous crimes to occur at the University of Arizona and within the Wildcat community, brought to you by the Daily Wildcat and Camp Student Radio. My name is Vanessa Ontiveros, and I'll be your host. The other day, I was watching, or rather, re-watching, or rather, re-re-re-re-watching one of my favorite shows, American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson. I think that it's masterfully done, and one of the best true crime shows out there, and that is saying something in such a competitive field. And if the Emmy Awards are any indication, I'm not alone in my belief. But one thing that always stands out to me are the scenes in which people are having the concept of DNA evidence explained to them for the first time. It wasn't that long ago that people had no idea that DNA evidence was even a thing, let alone what it did or what it meant. The O.J. Simpson trial took place in 1995. Nowadays, thanks to shows like Law & Order and CSI, most Americans have a general understanding of what the phrase 100% DNA match means that they've caught the crook, and another episode will be starting soon. But it's still a good reminder that the technology we use in crime-solving cases is constantly changing. Staples of the past, like blood spatter analysis and bite mark analysis, are now regarded as bunk science. And new methods of solving cases are always emerging as our technology progresses. And for criminology geeks like me, this is very, very exciting. It goes without saying that if you are a lovely listener, then you are probably interested in true crime. Which means, like me, you may have recently heard of a little something called familial DNA testing. It's pretty new and has only been around about a decade, but was thrust into the national spotlight last year when it was used to find a suspect in the Golden State Killer case, Joseph James D'Angelo. Even if you're a lovely listener who's not a true crime fan, you've probably heard of this case, partly because it was so big and partly because that means you are probably a family member of mine, and I talk about this case constantly. Either way, this new technique of familial DNA testing is a game changer in the way we solve cold cases. Even though it's so new, it's already made its way to Arizona. The first case to use familial DNA testing in this state took place in the Wildcat family. It was for the 2015 murder of UA alumna Allison Feldman, which initially went unsolved for three years. Today, let's talk about her story.
in the beginning, shall we? Allison Feldman was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota on June 14, 1983. Not much about Allison's early life has been written about, at least from what I could find. But I was able to speak with Allison's dad, Harley Feldman. Since Allison's death, Harley has worked tirelessly to keep her memory alive. When we first emailed, he told me he had two goals. One, to find the killer, which was done through familial DNA testing, which he pushed for. And two, to keep her memory alive. So he has spoken a lot with the media and law enforcement in the past four years. Here's what he told me about Allison's childhood. You know, she was a pretty quiet, shy little girl. Um, you know, she was a, she was a great child, um, but she tended to um, not be very outspoken um, and had a lot of friends. She liked to have fun uh, with other kids and that's what got her into the cheerleading she she started uh, dance when she was about oh let's see she must have been about six um and she really liked dance she tried some other activities and just she didn't like them but she really liked to uh, dance um, like ballet the best and over the years became pretty good she wasn't great, but she was pretty good. Uh, went to some national competitions with her team. Uh, she was toward the end, typically in the front row. Uh, and she just had a lot of fun and got to express herself in ways she hadn't been able to do it before. We, we would um, go to the competitions and um, watch her. And, you know, she just it just brought a lot of her personality out. Uh, and she worked really hard and did well and uh, so we were we were proud of going to all those events with her you know people would watch her and say hey she's pretty good uh, and that was cool but she just she just had fun as she got older Allison grew more outgoing and confident according to a 2015 article from the Star Tribune by Emma Nelson Allison joined the dance line and cheer team at her high school Minnetonka High School in Minnetonka Minnesota which she graduated from in 2001 before we talk about Allison's time at UA and her impact on campus, we have to know how she got to be a wildcat. As Allison grew older, the time eventually came for her to pick a college to go to. While Harley told me that Allison was always very focused on the social side of high school versus the academic side, her later success in her career just goes to show that she was a bright girl. A lot of students, at least in my high school experience, go into senior year with a plan. Allison was one of those students. According to her dad, Harley, she had her heart set on a small local college. Because she was relatively shy, we started talking about colleges and she said, well, I'm gonna go to a small school uh, because you know she would feel more comfortable in a smaller school. So we started looking at um, schools of three to 5,000 students. But sometimes, Plans change. Happens to a lot of people. That happened to me, and now here we are. And it happened to Allison on a road trip with her dad. She finally said, well, let's, you know, I want to go see one. So she and I drove to the University of uh, Miami of Ohio. We got within 10 miles, and it's 
you know, smaller schools are in small towns and Miami is surrounded by cornfields. And I could tell as we were getting closer, this was not what she was thinking. Because she grew up in the city and she's a city girl. So we got to the campus and the campus is beautiful. It's, all the buildings are the same architecture and they've got great athletic facilities and classrooms and all this. But the downtown is um, two bars and a, and a small store. <laughs> and we went to the campus. She really liked it, but she was hesitating. And when I, when we, we went into one of the bars for dinner and I said, well, what do you think? And, she, and I could, I knew where this was going. She said, um, this is too small. And we drove home. And then I did dawn her that small schools are in small towns. And if she wanted to go to a city, she'd probably have to uh, get to go to a little bigger school. With plan A not turning out to be what she wanted, it was time for plan B. Allison's dad told me that Allison seemed to want to go somewhere where it was warm after having lived her whole life in Minnesota, which is not exactly known for its blazing summers. She applied to a few later schools, including the University of Arizona. Here's how Harley remembered their conversation about UA going. And she said, can I go to the University of Arizona? And I said, do you know how big the school is? And she said, no. I said, 45,000 students. And by then, she was over the smallness, the bigness, whatever. She was ready to go to Arizona because it was warm and she just, there was magic to the school. After she got in, Allison made the over 1,500-mile journey from Minnesota to Arizona, first for orientation, and it was love at first sight. She stayed in the dorm, and I stayed in the dorm next door with that bad parents. Um, and I dropped her off at the dorm to so she could go get ready for dinner, and I saw her come back here in half an hour and go someplace. And when I came back in a half an hour, she wasn't downstairs and pretty about an hour later she comes downstairs with five friends that she had just met in the dorm and said I'm going here and I and uh, I'll just take care of dinner myself <laughs> in that little instant uh, she had grown up a lot when I went off to college which is exactly 455 miles away from my hometown of San Fernando California my mom was incredibly worried about the distance. She still talks about how far away I am almost every time we're on the phone. Moving away can be an incredibly frightening thing, as I'm sure a lot of you lovely listeners can attest to. I asked Harley if he was ever worried about Allison going to school so far away. No. Um, I mean, did we worry about her? Sure. But we never thought about... My wife and I traveled a lot. The kids went with us a lot around the world. Uh, we don't, we just don't think of the distance being a, a big issue. Um, and so we did, you know, we didn't worry too much. At UA, Allison was a communications major. She also declared a minor in Spanish, which would lead her to her study abroad experience in Alcalá de Hernández, Spain, in spring of 2004, her junior year. According to her dad, her parents knew that study abroad would be a good experience for her, but Allison was initially going to put it off until her senior year of college. But her parents felt that that would be too hectic, that there's too much to do senior year. So she went during her junior year. Initially, she seemed worried about the trip, her dad told me. 
But that soon changed. In fact, a lot seemed to change about Allison during her time studying abroad in Spain. Her dad said that Spain is where Allison really matured a lot and grew more and more confident. She was getting ready to go to Spain. I took her to the airport. She's crying. She's just, she just, you know, it was, it finally dawned on her that she's now going to go on her own. Two days later, we get a phone call from her. She and her, one of her friends had figured out how to get a cell phone over there and called to say hello, and she was having a good time. <laughs> Two days later. Spain is where Monica Brown first met Allison Feldman. Monica was also a junior at the time, one of a cohort of about 25 UA students staying in Alcala. Here's what Monica noticed the first time she met Allison. She's very bubbly. Um, she's She was energetic and, and just very kind. Um, she always um, she always seemed to be in a good mood and was always um, always liked to have fun. Monica told me that while she and Allison were friends, they often hung out in different groups that the cohort of 25 split up into. However, one experience in Spain bonded the group in a unique way. On March 11, 2004, several coordinated bombs planted by forces related to Al-Qaeda went off on Madrid's commuter train system three days before Spain's general election. It was one of the largest terror attacks in Spanish history. 193 people were killed, and approximately 2,000 people were injured. Alison Feldman, Monica Brown, and the rest of the UA group could have been among those people because that was the train they often took. It was just luck that they weren't on it that morning. When we were there, it was two and a half years to the day um, after September 11th when the there were um, a series of trains that were that were bombed in um, all leaving from Alcala, and they had actually canceled class for us to go watch these political demonstrations because in Spain, uh, people protest silently, which is very different than how it's done in America, and they wanted us to, to witness that. So they had canceled class for us to go, and we all slept in a little bit, um, and we missed those trains. We were, we were all supposed to be on those trains. And at that point, um, our it was really scary to be over there. Um, there were police everywhere, and you know, especially coming off of having September 11th. You know, we were all freshmen in college when September 11th happened, and then this was our junior year, so it was really traumatic. And we all banded together very tightly after that. Um, Dr. Fitch, who is still at U of A, she's incredible. She opened her house up to us, and we were all with her. Uh, stayed at her house, and that was really where we all bonded together. According to both Monica and Harley, being so close to a tragedy like that really brought the group together. They were thousands of miles away in a foreign country with a bit of a language barrier and a recent terrorist attack. That's the kind of thing that bonds you for life. Even after they returned home and left college, the group would get together, at least those who lived close to one another, once or twice a month to catch up. They were even thinking of maybe one day returning to Spain together. According to her dad, during the whole of the study abroad trip, Allison continued to grow more and more confident. No longer a shy little girl, she started traveling all across Europe. She got more and more confidence of traveling, so she, she said, 
sent us a note and said, this weekend I'm going to Portugal. I said, who are you going with? She said, nobody, I'm just doing it myself. Uh, and then toward the tail end of the trip, uh, a guy worked for me. Uh, his parents live in Istanbul and she flew to Istanbul for a week. And all of that told me she was uh, getting much more mature and confident in herself. Allison graduated from the University of Arizona with her degree in communications in 2005. After college, she decided to go into sales. Her father was initially taken aback by this decision, but it ended up being a perfect fit for her and a job she really excelled at. When she graduated U of A, she said to me, I'm going to go into sales. Of course, I'm thinking, why did you spend four years in college to go into sales? And what had happened in her sophomore year is that she was looking to uh, make some money on the side, and she found this job part-time working to sell apartment leases. And after a month, she was selling as many leases as the full-time people were. And I thought, you know, maybe she does know how to sell. And she was, she was getting more open with people. And the, the study brought really, really brought that forward. But that, so this evolved during her whole time at the uh, And so she said, when I, when she said, I want to go into sales, I was pretty confident that she could actually do it. And she loved people by then. She just loved talking to people and working with people and listening to their issues and and um, she, be, she had become a real people person, which was a long ways from her sh being a shy little girl. And she would get turned down 99 times out of 100. And I'd call her and say, well, how do you, how do you feel about that? And she'd say, you know, tomorrow will be a different day. A, a typical, real salesperson attitude. She moved to Phoenix. Tucson was just too small for what she wanted. And within a few months, got a job selling copiers. After working at that job for about four years, she found another job in medical sales, and she was determined to succeed. <laughs> I said, I've been in the medical industry. You can't just walk in the door. You've got to have some experience. And she said, I'll figure it out. The company she eventually found work with specifically wanted people with experience in sales, as opposed to people with the background in medicine. So Allison was a perfect fit. She started off selling surgical dressings and bandages. After a couple of years, she was promoted to burn specialist, selling products used to treat severe burn victims. Now, the thing to know is that there are only a handful of severe burn trauma centers in each state. So Allison ended up being in charge of five states, Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, Texas, and Kansas. She traveled a lot and took care to build relationships with hospital staff. While sales is usually regarded as a difficult job due to the near-constant rejection, for Allison, selling these supplies was difficult for a different reason. As a part of her work, she would go into operating rooms to see patients. According to her dad, this affected her emotionally. Seeing people injured and in pain really took a toll on her the first time she did it. But... By focusing on helping heal the patients, she managed to stick with her job and was actually very dedicated to it. She would get calls from uh, hospitals in uh, Tucson on Saturday and say, you know what, I'm out of the dressings. Can you bring some down? And she would. She'd drop whatever she was doing in Phoenix, 
drive to Tucson, drop off the dressings, and come back. And that's what they loved about her. Allison also volunteered each summer at Camp Courage in Prescott, Arizona, which specializes in helping child burn victims. By 2015, Allison was crushing it at her job, in a happy relationship, and living in her own house in Scottsdale, Arizona. Something that some of you lovely listeners, particularly those who, like me, are not from Arizona, may not know, is that Scottsdale has something of a reputation for being very affluent. Lots of spas, lots of golf courses, lots of malls, and not a lot of crime. I found several articles and blogs calling Scottsdale one of the safest cities in Arizona, and the data supports this. To get a sense of just how safe Scottsdale is, I looked at every criminology student's favorite set of statistics, Uniform Crime Reports. Uniform Crime Reports, or UCRs, are collected by the FBI on all the crime that happens in a given city. I compared the crime reports from 2016 for two cities, Scottsdale and nearby Phoenix. Now, according to the FBI, Phoenix in 2016 had a population of 1,586,611 people, making it about six and a half times larger than Scottsdale, which had a population of 240,885 people. However, Phoenix reported 30 times more violent crimes than Scottsdale. In regards to murder and non-negligent manslaughter, which are included within violent crimes, Phoenix reported 36 and a half times more cases than Scottsdale. You know how in true crime shows, people always say, we never thought it could happen here? That was definitely the case for Scottsdale. Before I get into what we know about the night of Allison's murder, I have to make a note of something. Normally, I don't bury the lead when going through the murders on this show. I make the killer's name known, usually within the first five minutes. However, the person who has been arrested and is currently suspected of being Allison's killer is just that, a suspect. The evidence against him is pretty strong, but he has not yet been put to trial or found guilty. So in telling the story of that night, I will just say the man, or the killer, instead of the suspect's actual name. Though, I will get into the suspect's identity later on in the show. And on another note, this is a particularly gruesome and troubling death. So if you are in any way sensitive to this kind of content, please just skip forward to about minute 29 in the show. It was late on the night of February 17, 2015, when the killer made his way inside Allison's home. Not much is known about how exactly he did it, but according to a 2017 Arizona Republic article by Nathan J. Fish and Larissa Carbajal, Allison would sometimes leave the doors or windows open in order to get a breeze through the house. That's a possibility. There were no signs of forced entry. What we do know, from what's come out since that night, is that after he entered the home, the killer attacked Allison. Investigators later determined that Allison had fought back against her attacker, likely causing cuts on the killer's hands. According to a 2018 Arizona Republic article by Lindsay Collum, the man sexually assaulted her using a beer bottle, 
strangled her, and ultimately bludgeoned her to death. Harley Feldman told me that police found evidence that the killer stayed in the home for about three hours total. How much of that was before, during, or after murdering Allison, I cannot say. Before he left, the killer took measures to avoid his capture. He used bleach on the body and removed his fingerprints from the scene, according to the Arizona Republic. According to a 2015 article from the Lakeshore Weekly News, he also took Allison's Tiffany bracelet, credit cards, and her iPhone 6 before leaving at around 1 a.m. on February 18, 2015. The stolen cell phone would actually be one of the things that made Allison's family aware of the fact that something was very, very wrong. I talked to her once, twice a day. She talked to her mother four or five times a day. And um, people would say to her, why do, you, why do you talk to your parents so much? And she'd say, because I enjoy it. <laughs> we, were, we were really close. and we, we never told her to call every day. It's just something she wanted to do. And um, the night before, uh, we, uh, we didn't talk to her. And sort of unusual, but not so much. She was getting ready for a trip to the Bahamas with her company. And she'd gone to uh, Walmart or in a couple of the stores to buy stuff for the trip. And so she was busy. I texted her about 10 o'clock Minneapolis time. And the text didn't go through. But at that time, it happened fairly often, so I didn't think anything of it. But the next day, when we tried to call her, her phone was off. And she might have answered, but in sales, it's never off. And my wife said to me about 2 or 3 o'clock, this, something's not right. And so we called the Scottsdale Police Department for a wellness check. And in the meantime, her boyfriend at the time went, went over to the house because he couldn't get a hold of her either. And so he got there five minutes before the police did, and he's the one who found her. And then the police found her. Um, and they called me about three hours later and said to me, are you driving? I said, yes. And he said, please pull off the road. My wife's story is a little different. She's a flight attendant, and she had a trip from Minneapolis to New York in the evening. The pilot said to her, you know, I know you're worried. You want to just stay here and, you know, we'll find somebody else to take the trip. And she said, no, you know, there's not much I can do, so I'll just, I'll just take the uh, flight. Um, we've... My daughter, my oldest daughter, and I had had dinner with the grandkids, and she was on her way home, so as soon as I found out, I went over to her house, talked to her, and the two of us sat there for the longest two hours of our life, waiting for the plane to land in New York, uh, and I knew my wife would call. Uh, typically, she works first class, but on that flight, she worked coach, because when it landed, she could get on the phone card. So she called me right after the plane got to the gate. And I told her, and she freaked out. I mean, 
and she was screaming on the aircraft with the passengers still on the flight. And she got so crazy, they took her to the hospital in New York. The whole crew went with her um, to give her some sedatives to calm her down. And then the airline flew her back to Minneapolis the next morning. Uh, we picked her up at the airport. So it was, a, it was an incredibly trend, um, difficult event for her. She and Allison were best friends. And so she didn't just lose a daughter, she lost her best friend. When her boyfriend found her, Allison was nude, with the cloth wrapped around her head, according to a 2015 Associated Press report by Terry Tang. The official cause of death was head trauma. At the crime scene, there was not a lot of solid evidence to work with. However, there was DNA. Now, this is always a promising sign, but I think that one thing that people misunderstand about crime is that just having the DNA is not a for sure sign that a case will be solved. The DNA must also exist in a database somewhere. When investigators initially ran Allison's killer's DNA, there was no match. But as I mentioned at the top of the show, Allison's case wouldn't be solved for three years, but it would be solved. Harley Feldman never considered it a cold case. The Scottsdale police were very good. They, they said, you know, I said, I hate to keep bothering you. They said, no, 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 we like when people, when parents stay engaged because it makes us want to solve the crime even more. And so we had a great relationship with them. We just were just frustrated in solving the case. During this time, the Scottsdale Police Department worked to try to find the killer. According to a February 2017 Arizona Republic article by Garrett Mitchell, police initially thought that Allison may have known her killer and that it was an isolated attack, though a clear motive was not, and still is not, known. Investigators were working in the neighborhood the same week the article was published, two years after her murder. During this canvassing, they obtained voluntary DNA samples from locals. A reward of up to $10,000 was also available to anyone with any information about who might have killed Allison. According to an NBC News report from 2018 by James Rainey, police had interviewed over 500 people by this time. But still, nothing. Police had also tried a couple of other techniques on the DNA, like phenotyping, which can reveal some of the likely physical characteristics of the DNA match, before familial DNA entered the conversation. The Scottsdale police said to me, you know, there's a new technology called familial DNA. It's not legal in Arizona at the moment. But maybe, you know, it, it's something that can lead to uh, finding this guy. And I just happen to know a lady uh, lives in Paradise Valley who's a legislator. She was in the House for two terms in the Senate. And she knew uh, another woman that was running for office who was out of the uh, Attorney General's office. She was actually the Assistant Attorney General at the time. So I met with her and I said, we'd like to use this technology, but it's not legal here, so what, what can we do about that? So she talked to the Attorney General of Arizona, uh, who said, uh, there's nothing in the law that would prevent it, and I will talk to the governor. 
And so they went to the governor and he said the same thing. I we don't see anything in the law that would prevent its use in Arizona. And so they decided with that to um, bring the technology to Arizona. And they warned me that it would take a long time because they wanted to do the first one right. They didn't want to make any mistakes. It would be months between getting approval from the governor and actually getting the match. But once they did get that match, things moved pretty quickly. According to Harley, a familial match was found on Thursday, April 5th, 2018. A DNA match was found the next day, Friday, April 6th. Harley Feldman got the phone call Monday, April 5th, that a match had been found. I got a call from the um, chief of police, the assistant chief in um, Scottsdale, and said, the chief pop, he said, you know the phone call I told you I was going to make someday? He said, today's the day. On Tuesday, April 6th, Scottsdale police arrested 42-year-old Ian L. Mitchum outside the Phoenix area deli where he worked, according to a 2018 Arizona Republic article by Nathan J. Fish and Larissa Carvajal. According to Harley Feldman, Mitchum's trial is set for 2020. They have asked for the death penalty. So how did they do it? What is familial DNA, and how exactly does it even work? I want to start off by saying that the 2018 NBC News article by James Rainey entitled Familial DNA Puts Elusive Killers Behind Bars, But Only 12 States Use It is a great article and was massively helpful when researching this and will be tweeted out by the show's Twitter account at Wildcat Crime Pod. Traditional DNA testing identifies the genetic fingerprint or the unique genetic code of the criminal and runs that through databases, which mostly contain the DNA of people who have already been convicted of a crime. Analysts focus on 20 specific locations within the DNA. When they find a person in the database whose DNA matches all 20 of those markers, then that is considered a match. The technique of familial DNA matching is a little over a decade old. According to the Los Angeles Times, how it works is that certain markers are passed down from parents to their children. If a large number of these markers are the same for DNA found at a crime scene and someone in a database, that indicates that the crime was likely committed by a relative of the person. To get even more specific, Certain markers on the Y chromosome are shared by close male relatives, fathers, sons, brothers. If these match, then the analysts have just narrowed down a pool of thousands of potential suspects to a handful of people. That's why familial DNA techniques are really only effective and, so far as I can see, have only been used on male offenders. To think of it another way, to solve a case with familial DNA, investigators need three sets of DNA. There is set A, which is the DNA found at the crime scene, which we know belongs to the killer. You test that against database DNA until you get DNA set B, which would be DNA whose markers match set A and is the DNA of a male family member of the killer. But then you need set C. Set C comes from the person police believe committed the crime. 
Since the pool is so shallow at this point, narrowed only to close male relatives of set B, police can usually determine the suspect pretty well. But in order for them to make an arrest, they have to test DNA set C against DNA set A. If it's a match, then the police know they've found their guy. The challenge is in getting DNA set C. You can't exactly just walk up to a suspect and say, hey, can I have a cheek swab? No one would ever give it to you. So sometimes, police have to get creative. One famous case was the 2010 arrest of Lonnie David Franklin Jr., a.k.a. the Grim Sleeper. He was a serial killer who targeted mainly poor black women in south-central L.A. during the 1980s, killing at least 12. His son's DNA was in a database, and so police determined Lonnie Franklin Jr. to be the likely killer. Investigators obtained his DNA by collecting pizza crusts and utensils he left after a meal in a restaurant. Here's how it all went down in Allison's case. A lot of this information was obtained from a 2018 Arizona Republic article by Uriel Garcia entitled How Familial DNA Search Was Used to Find Scottsdale Murder Suspect in Allison Feldman Case and the aforementioned NBC News article. Investigators had the DNA from the crime scene in 2015, but no database match. After Harley Feldman and investigators got approval from the governor, a lab was set up in order to perform the process. A match was found in Mark Mitchum, who was and is in prison for child molestation. Police determined who the likely suspect was, Mark's brother with a criminal past, Ian Mitchum. Now they needed to test Ian Mitchum's DNA. Luckily, they already had it. Ian Mitchum had been arrested for a DUI in August 2015, during which a blood sample was taken. Using that sample, investigators determined a perfect match between Ian's DNA and the DNA found at the scene of Allison's murder, and an arrest was made. As I said at the top of the show, Allison's case was the first case in Arizona to use familial DNA, and even then it was only really allowed because it wasn't explicitly illegal. It doesn't come as much of a surprise to me, at least, that Arizona allowed the use of this technology. This state is pretty notoriously tough on crime. But as of 2018, only 12 states use this technique. That's partly because it's so new, but also because it's pretty controversial. There is a big debate surrounding privacy and the use of familial DNA testing. According to the NBC report, some groups, notably the American Civil Liberties Union, argue against expanding databases or familial DNA because it brings the potential to harass individuals. They note that this would be particularly harmful to communities of color, as people of color are already overrepresented in things like prison DNA databases. Even more privacy concerns were brought up after the 2018 arrest of suspected Golden State killer Joseph James D'Angelo, who is accused of committing over 50 rapes and a dozen murders in California in the 1970s and 80s. He was caught by first matching the DNA from the crime scene to DNA found on a genealogical website. A close male relative of his had submitted his DNA to the website, but some people argued that D'Angelo did not volunteer his own DNA, thus his privacy was violated. 
And for those of you wondering, no, you are not in danger because you or your brother or your dad signed up for Ancestry.com or 23andMe. According to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, those websites only work with law enforcement when a court order is issued. They have pretty strong privacy guidelines. But you may want to read the fine print for less reputable websites. Because it's so new, there's also not a lot of regulation surrounding the use of familial DNA. Certainly no federal regulation. Currently, investigators really only use it for larger, usually more gruesome cases, for the kinds of killers that no one would feel safe with having roaming around. I'm going to be transparent here and say that I am all for the use of familial DNA in murder cases, particularly cases that have gone cold. I spend a lot of time looking into crime and the techniques used to solve cases. And a lot of people who work in crime feel that this could revolutionize the way crimes are solved. For investigators and true crime aficionados and victims, family members, people who think about and read about and are around murder so often, this could be the key to solving many unsolved cases, we feel. Loyal, lovely listeners may remember true crime investigative reporter Billy Jensen, who was on our most recent minisode. Go give it a listen if you haven't already. Billy is a noted supporter of the use of familial DNA in searches because it can solve cases and finally give closures for survivors and family members, sometimes decades after the crime has been committed. Another big supporter of familial DNA? Allison's dad, Harley Feldman. You know, I, I know what it did for us. It, it found a perpetrator that we might never have found. Um, and so I look at other families who have unresolved crimes, um, and I know what they feel like. You know, they want to, they want some justice, and they're not finding any. And it, it's incredibly frustrating to not know if it'll ever be found, you know, whether the perpetrator will ever be found. So I tried to um, push the use of the technology to help those families that don't have an answer. And it might not solve their case, but it's another tool to uh, try to find the perpetrator. Harley has encountered the same sort of pushback from privacy groups and other opponents of the use of familial DNA. Here's his response. My response is that all this does is generate a lead. Um, The perpetrator still has all their Fourth Amendment rights. The police still have to put a case against the person. It's just a lead. They don't view it that way. And this is the battle that goes on that I fight all the time. Uh, And for a family, they really don't care. They want their crime solved. While I understand the reservations some people have, I, like Harley and many others, would like to see familial DNA testing be used in the future. Every murder victim deserves to have some semblance of justice. And one of the ways to do that is to identify the killer. To work so that what has happened to them can't happen to anyone else. As I said before, after Allison's death, Harley Feldman had two goals. To find the killer and to keep Allison's legacy alive. We've gone through how the suspected killer was found. Now, 
let's talk about her legacy. There's a reason I talked about Allison's study abroad experience so much earlier in the podcast. Allison's parents regarded the trip as a transformative experience for her. The girl who left Arizona wasn't the same woman who came back from Spain. Two of the people who studied abroad with Allison, Rob Sterling and Monica Brown, wanted to find a way to solidify Allison's legacy, and they knew just how to do it. In 2018, the Allison Feldman Memorial Scholarship was established at the University of Arizona. This scholarship helps pay for students to study abroad. Here's Monica on how the idea for the scholarship first came about. It was actually Rob's, Robert Sterling's idea, and he uh, kind of came to came to me and a group of us in a text, and then um, he and I started to meet, and, and we had some things in place, but we needed, we wanted um, the Feldman's permission. And so I got his, uh, Harley's number from a friend of Allison's, her good friend Katie Wood, and got his number, and he and I had a conversation, and, and he said, absolutely, and he said, I'd love to help with it. After getting the blessing from Allison's parents, Plans for the scholarship went into the works. But getting the scholarship established wasn't easy. In order to ensure that it would remain for years to come, Monica and Rob had to raise enough for an endowment. And they had said, you know, this can, you have five years to raise the money, um, and, you know, that you, you will be able to do it in five years, but it takes a long time and, and be patient. And we had it done in, in about three months. Monica said that there was a large amount of support from Allison's family, the community back in Minnesota, people here in Arizona, and UA. In truth, we would never have been able to do it without Harley and Elaine. Um, their friends and family and their community in Minnesota, and then Allison's community here, especially her work environment, everybody wanted, wanted in. Um, and I think when you know that you're leaving a legacy for her that will be there, for years and years and years to come and allows a student to enjoy an opportunity that Allison, you know, calls, you know, one of the most significant times, at least in my life, and Harley can attest that she came back a different person. I think she would be so proud. The first campaign was launched in February 2018. Money was raised through UA's crowdsourcing website. On the updates page, there is a message from Allison's mom, Elaine Feldman, sharing details about Allison's life, including the fact that she was going to be a bridesmaid in her best friend Katie's wedding, or that the last message Allison wrote on her computer was to remember to buy a hat for her upcoming trip to the Bahamas, which she missed by three days. If you're in the mood for heartbreak, you can read that update. I did, and I had to call my mom immediately afterwards and tell her that I loved her. The campaign ended up raising $29,500. The first student to receive the scholarship was Taylor Leopard, a UA English and Global Studies student. Right now, she is in Guatemala with the Ideas Program. She's pursuing a career in human rights work. As of 9.39 p.m. Friday, March 15th, the last day for the 2019 fundraising, the campaign has raised $12,450, exceeding its goal of $12,000. It's rare that these stories on this show have anything even close to a happy ending. But I think this is as close as we've gotten. 
Today, during an interview, someone asked me why I liked crime reporting so much, a common theme on this show and a common question in my life. And I told them that I think victims' stories need to be heard. But in talking to Allison's family and friends, I think there's another layer to that. In telling the stories and remembering these people, there is a chance to have them not only not be forgotten, but to be remembered for even more than what happened to them. We can remember them for what they did. People like Allison, who found confidence on a study abroad trip and used that confidence to go into a career that allowed her to help others. I think Monica said it best. I think the hardest part is when your life ends the way hers did. She didn't have the opportunity to, to keep establishing her legacy. And what's interesting is that through it all, her, all you've not heard one negative thing about her. There's not been one. She was so kind and, and passionate and, and really served her life trying to help others. And all we wanted to do was help establish, um, help the Feldmans and help other students be able to experience what we did in her name and, and allow her name to continue on for as long as we possibly can because he took that from her and he took that from her family and but he can't take this and so to have this opportunity for future U of A students she was a diehard U of A fan um, I know would make her so proud from the Daily Wildcat and Camp Student Radio this has been Wildcat Crime thank you all for listening till next time for listening to this episode of Wildcat Crime. If you liked it and want to hear more from us in the future, please make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. And follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Wildcat Crime Pod. Feel free to message us with questions, comments, or episode ideas. You can also reach us by emailing Vanessa O at dailywildcat.com. This episode was researched, written, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Vanessa Ondiveros. Recorded in Camp Studios. Our logo was designed by Nick Trujillo. Our music was Ghost Dance by Kevin McLeod. Special thanks to everyone at Camp Student Radio. Special thanks to everyone at The Daily Wildcat. And a very special thanks to everyone who appeared on the podcast today, Monica Brown and Harley Feldman. Once again, thank you for listening. This has been Wildcat Crime. Till next time.